Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watts and as ever I am joined with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone, welcome to the show. Uh, Bradley Allsop. Hi folks. And Ali Warwin. Good afternoon everyone. And today we're going to be talking about uh, three top big topics. Uh, Northern Ireland uh, suddenly uh, becoming... Uh, a centre of discontent again uh, for uh, unionists predominantly uh, in the post-Brexit fallout. Uh, we'll also be talking uh, about the death of the uh, husband of uh, our monarch, the late uh, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip of Greece. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we'll be seeing how this is affecting local the local elections, which are going to be happening in just a few weeks' time. But to uh, start off, as I say, uh, Northern Ireland is once again in flames. 20 years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, 100 years after its creation, uh, there are now rumblings of discontent, um, shall we say, in the form of petrol bombs uh, being thrown at buses. Um, there was an image of a bus burning um, in in, uh, in one of the uh, Irish cities. Um, it was thought to be attempted murder, but the uh, guy who was driving the bus was uh, actually forced off the bus uh, beforehand. So a bit traumatising for him, I'm sure, but uh, him or her, but... Um, they were fine um, in, in terms of body, I suppose. Um, but uh, yes, there's been enormous amounts of discontent, um, primarily because it, despite the government's repeated insistence that Brexit would not mean that there would be uh, checks at the border for goods going from Northern Ireland to the rest of the UK um, because of the deal which was struck with the EU when we left uh, after the end of the transition period, uh, that has actually transpired. That's what's happening. Um, it's also, so there's now a fear, I suppose, that uh, Northern Ireland is now much more economically close to the Republic of Ireland. And that raises uh, fears for unionists there that that's uh, another step towards unification. There are other concerns as well. I mean, we've been in lockdown for a year, and that includes Northern Ireland. Um, most of the people getting involved in these riots are quite young, um, and therefore, uh, as we know, typically young people are pretty economically disadvantaged uh, everywhere, not just in Northern Ireland or the UK. Um, so that sort of general economic discontent might be a cause of uh, or, or a contributing factor in these uh, in these uh, developments. Um, and there's also discontent around the fact, I think this was the trigger for it, um, the uh, funeral of Bobby Story, who was the head of intelligence for the Irish Republican Army. Uh, he died last year. Um, and there was a big, big uh, funeral for him. Um, but at the time, there was you know, hundreds of people turning out, uh, including some very prominent uh, current and former leaders of Sinn Féin. Um, 
but this was also at a time when COVID regulations, which Sinn Féin, as part of the government, of course, had been uh, involved in drafting, um, said that there should only be a maximum of 30 people at funerals. Uh, the police service of Northern Ireland decided not to intervene in the funeral. They decided not to prosecute. Um, and so a lot of the blame for that uh, discontent is now being aimed uh, not at Sinn Féin, but at the police, um, which is, uh, uh, as we've seen in the UK, uh, a sign that trouble might be on the horizon um, with uh, popular discontent against, uh, against the police, at least from one section of uh, the community. Um, I wonder what your take is on, on, on all of this, Bradley? Yeah, thanks, Colm. Um, I mean... I, th- I mean, I think that you, like you pointed out, there's there's a lot of different triggers for this. I think it would be simplistic just to lay the blame at the door of Brexit. Although obviously, um, I mean, I mean, the people of Northern Ireland have been completely let down um, by the Brexit process, um, as was quite foreseeable as well. Um, and I I find it utterly fascinating um, that that the DUP um, both both supported Brexit um, at, at, at the start. Um, but also scuppered Theresa May's deal at every step of the way. Not not that I was a cheerleader of Theresa May's deal, um, but it 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 certainly doesn't seem to have been once Boris Johnson came on the scene. It certainly wasn't an optimal outcome to Brexit negotiations for the DUP um, and the unionist communities. So I I find it I find the DUP's frustration with the situation now fascinating. Um, as maybe a complete inability to think forward in terms of political strategizing by that party. Um, but yeah, so I think you know to lay all of the blame down at Brexit, however, would be simplistic. You know, there are a lot of triggers that have caused this, and I think probably something that you didn't mention. It was a really good article uh, by Adam Ramsey in Open Democracy um, yesterday. I think he wrote it, um, and it, basically his point was that when you've got a community whose entire political identity has been built around uh, loyalty and allegiance to British institutions, um. But for decades, you have a British elite that don't really give a shit about them. And pile on top of that austerity and neglect in various communities in Northern Ireland, um, it, it's it's like a tinderbox, isn't it? Um, and then you took on to that people being in lockdown for months on end. You add to that um, getting the short end of a, of a Brexit deal that leaves them a bit distanced from the UK. Um, you add on to that other, other concerns around this funeral. You, know, you, you can see how it, it's quite easy for, for that to turn into something um, unpleasant and violent. Um, that, of course, isn't to excuse any of the behaviour. Um, I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen some of the footage of what's been happening, but it, it's quite shocking, actually. Um, I think particularly disturbing was um, some of the scenes around one of the, the peace lines, actually, in, in Belfast, I think it was, um, which which obviously historically were, were uh, physical barriers erected between, between um, na- nationalist and unionist communities. Um, so to see to see you know some of the scenes that happen over there, I, th- I think there was a scene I saw of a, of um, you know flames, you know petrol bomb or, some, or something like that being thrown at, at one of the peace walls. That that's that's disturbing to see, I think, um, given the history of that area of the world. Uh, and I and I think if if you listen, you know, I've heard a few things from 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 commentators over there, and it, it's. It's it's a slightly more serious situation than they've seen in Ireland for a little while. Um, without without being alarmist and, and saying you know it's all downhill from here, but I think 
I think it's gone a little bit further than perhaps the bouts of violence that have been seen over the last decade or so. So it is a concerning situation, um, and 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 certainly the current state of things with Brexit are not going to help settle that. I think, uh, and I, I suppose it, it it asks the the broader question of Irish Irish reunification, um, which a lot of people seem to think is is much more likely than it has been um, at any point for a long time, um, and if if the country goes, does go that way, or even if it if it starts to look like it will and it doesn't, uh, how how can that be managed in a peaceful way um, in Northern Ireland? And also, what what can the British establishment do to ensure that? Because so far, um, for a very long time, it's been neglected. You know, the, the Conservative and Unionist Party, they, they love to have that in their name and they, they stand behind the Union Jack. Um, but what do they actually really do for the people of Northern Ireland? Is this the return of the Troubles? I, I certainly wouldn't want to say that yet. Uh, we're not there, um, but it, it's not. It's not. A we've, good place. we've got so we've got several um, prominent unionist groups. I think the it's the UDF, the UDA, that have withdrawn their support for the Good Friday Agreement. I think to be fair, the DUP never backed it, did they? Um, and obviously, they're the largest party in Northern Ireland. So maybe maybe it's not. I don't want to say it's not a big deal because obviously it is. I, I guess it's m- more a problem if actual uh, paramilitary or former paramilitary groups are withdrawing their support for the Good Friday Agreement. It's kind of scary. I feel. I mean, yeah, like I, I, I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but it's certainly, it's not. It's not a good place that Northern Ireland's in at the moment, um, and and it, it's it's perhaps a slightly more precarious position than it's been in for for some time. Um, but but yeah, there, there there are also an awful lot of people in Northern Ireland that are very committed to the peace process and, and work very hard at it. So I think it it does have some firm foundations in society. So we're we're not we're not there yet, but it it's not it's not a great place at the moment. I don't think. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Callum? Well, I think um, Bradley very much hits the nail on the head there. Uh, this is very much a culmination of, of a number of different factors. And I think that the biggest one has got to be that long-term neglect for certain communities in Northern Ireland um, throughout the last few decades. It's since the Good Friday Agreement and even before that, there has been a, a long-term failure to invest in these communities to support them to give them the resources they need um joblessness is is a is a good measure of of how the the government in northern ireland and the westminster government has failed to support the people in those communities and it's boiling over again um and and yes brexit is a, is a factor in this um the the issues um highlighted around the the, the funeral and, and Sinn Féin's politicians in attendance again they shouldn't have been in attendance um, and there's there's anger there's anger because people see a, a, a duality of standards um, where we go from here is 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 potentially going to go one way or the other really there needs to be a, a firm commitment to the to the peace process and I think listening to what Boris Johnson's been saying recently I'm concerned that 
they're failing to realize the severity of the situation. Um, Michael Martin, the, the Taoiseach in, in Ireland, uh, has called for a, a summit or a conference to, to bring all sides together and, and to have a real strategy. How do we de-escalate the situation? Boris Johnson says that's not necessary. I think that that's a failure on his part because certainly being the British Prime Minister, he has a responsibility to bring everybody round the table um, and he certainly has a responsibility to take a seat up at that table as well if if there's a need to. Um, it's it's worrying, it's concerning. Um, obviously, it's I would, I would obviously express caution in saying that we're going back to the days of the Troubles because they were a horrific time for the, the people of Northern Ireland and beyond. Um, we're not there yet, but there is the potential for further trouble if the people of Northern Ireland continue to be ignored and neglected. If we don't invest in, in communities, and I mean, you just got to look at the industry as well in, in Belfast. They, they used to have um, uh, uh, Bombardier that had a huge complex there and they used to build ships there. That's pretty much all gone now. And, and that, that echoes other areas of the country where there's been long-term decline and neglect. But the situation in Northern Ireland, the politics of, of Northern Ireland is a very specific and special set of circumstances. And we, we should absolutely recognise that and support people to rebuild their communities and actually build new networks and connections across the, the walls that divide communities. Hmm. Yeah, Ollie. Uh, I think Bradley had his hand up. If you want to go to him first. Oh, sorry. That's all right. Ah, yes, I, I, I didn't see the hand. I apologise, Bradley. That's right. Thanks, Ollie. Um, yeah, I think I think Callum, I think Callum's spot on there. Really. Um, uh, obviously, I, I referred to the um, to a, a political identity built around loyalty to British institutions. Now, obviously, I'm referring to the to the unionist communities there. Um, and 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 obviously it's not it's not their only political entity, but for for many unionist communities, that's that's a really key part. Um, you know this sort of loyalty or uh, belongingness to to the rest of British institutions. And I think I think when you I think particularly when you have the the austerity that we've had in the UK, um, which Northern Ireland hasn't escaped um, for for the last eleven years now. Um, you know what. What is what is our government going to do? This current government now. What what are they going to do to to invest in Northern Ireland? What are they going to do to improve the local economy in Northern Ireland? Particularly now, there's this border down down the Irish Sea, um, and also you know, Callum, you're talking about this this you know this this talk a call for talks, um, and, and for, for some some discussion. Could you? This is the problem when you've got a, a prime minister like Boris Johnson. Can you really imagine him sort of leading something like that and have, having this sort of diplomacy and tact um, and, and, and empathy to, to be able to deal with, with, with what is a really complex, nuanced um, uh, situation with, with many grievances going back, you know, decades. Uh, could, could you really imagine someone like Boris Johnson um, playing a leading role um, in, in handling something like that? that? That, I think, is one of the, the real things we lack when we have a prime minister like, like Boris. I tell you what we could do. Who we could deal with um, in this situation? Um, the guy who helped to uh, negotiate the Good Friday Agreement in the first place, Jeremy Corbyn. 
because he, he was uh, quite instrumental in that process uh, the first time round. I wonder if they'll call upon him this time. Um, didn't Ollie. Know, didn't know the joke. No, yeah, no, yeah, because he, he, he had been uh, one of the few MPs who was willing to talk to um, all sides in that conflict, um, including people like Sinn Féin and so on. Um, and when the Labour government was negotiating the Good Friday Agreement, they had to talk to people like Jeremy Corbyn, not just Jeremy Corbyn, but um, MPs who had been willing to talk to uh, those groups in uh, Ireland because they had, they were a bridge, effectively. They, they knew these people and they knew who to talk to. Um, so yeah, Jeremy Corbyn was part of that process, unacknowledged because, of course, he was a... Uh, considered to be an IRA sympathiser even then and all that sort of nonsense. But nevertheless, um, yeah, that's an important part of his legacy, uh, I think. Sorry, Ollie. That's all right, no problem. I, I was also unaware of that fact as well, um, which kind of goes to show, doesn't it, um, how how ignored um, like someone that kind of influential in the, in the peacemaking processes. Um, or maybe it's just because I'm quite young, I don't know. But um, anyway, back to Northern Ireland. Um, Sorry, we're talking about another one, but you know what I mean. Um, I was just going to say, um, I kind of, I, I echo those kind of I, those um, those ideas put forward there by Callum Bradley, that it's been caused in Northern Ireland by a whole kind of host of um, social and political um, circumstances, really. And I think, um, as alluded to as well, um, you know, lar- being largely ignored by Westminster Westminster politics. I think there's always been um, this kind of disconnection between, uh, like England and, and Scotland and Northern Ireland. It always kind of feels quite abstract. I don't know if that's just me um, or something that's felt by more more people. But um, this kind of um, this underinvestment, this kind of neglect of um, you know Northern Irish Irish society is is quite similar in a way um i don't know if i want to make this comparison but like to the north of england and to uh, like the the southwest of england places like uh, plymouth and and portsmouth um and you know places in in northern england as well that are ignored and i suppose it's part of of wider cause for um independence and you know devolution quite recently um the northern independent party which you know wants wants independence for yorkshire and and the you know it's quite a massive um, deal as well in Scotland for calling for Scottish independence. So I think maybe the the slide towards more calls for Irish unification could be um, kind of explained uh, almost with um, other other factions almost wanting wanting devolution because they're just so ignored by um, Westminster politics and they're so left out it's just it's almost no wonder and i really don't know what the long-term strategy is by um the conservatives and boris johnson's government really yes uh because as i say they are risking um the return of distinct civil unrest which could of course spill over to um this country as well it can come home effectively uh such are the perils of colonialism um but there has been a, a, a there was a reprieve um, on Saturday from uh, the writing, uh, mainly because of uh, our next story, which of course is 
the death of the Duke of Edinburgh. Many Unionists, of course, see them as a, as an important uh, figure, the royal family, um, uh, important symbol of the UK, and clearly uh, the uh, British media does as well. Um, I saw some uh, friends of mine, well, a, fr- a friend of mine said um, they were absolutely terrified on Friday afternoon because they were uh, just listening to the radio and uh, the music just stopped and there was a pause and then suddenly this special broadcast began um, and she thought that there had been some sort of major terrorist attack or a natural disaster um, and then of course it turned out that it was the uh, the death of the of the Duke of Edinburgh um, and I've seen the clip now when it aired on the BBC and the newsreaders reading it out and her voice is sort of trembling. Um, and I'm not sure if that was she was trembling with genuine emotion or whether she was putting it on or whether it was just one knows that this is a, a historic announcement of, of sorts and therefore you, you want to make sure you get it right. Um, so I don't know what it was, but... I, the thing is, I don't watch television, really. Uh, so this all sort of passed me by. Um, I did see someone comment, this is a very sad day. Uh, I too wish to watch TV today. Um, the whole nation was effectively stopped after, after, the, uh, after the prince's death. Um, we, you know, I, and I thought, you know, there was a, you know, after he died, there was, they played um, two minutes of the national anthem uh, as a sort of national moment of silence kind of thing. Um, and I thought, do you know, I mean, the thing is, like, the, the song that's playing is the national anthem, which is Long Live Our Gracious Queen. So the song's not even about him. You know, it's a weird thing to sort of have playing over your image when you've died, I thought. Um, And this is one of the things I I kind of feel that's odd about this this death and how we're being expected to celebrate it almost, these, these eight days of mourning that have been declared. Because constitutionally, Prince Philip doesn't never, he didn't really have a role anyway. You know, he's not part of the part of the state. Obviously, you know, condolences to his family and, and so on. You know, they're, uh, it's very incredibly sad when someone dies. But at the end of the day, he wasn't even the actual monarch. You know, when the Queen dies, it will have huge constitutional implications. There'll be a succession, um, of course, and that person then has to sign laws into existence and as we have learned over the last year that or many people have known for years but it's become to prominence more recently that the uh, crown does have an effective veto over laws um, before they come to parliament um, so this person has an awful lot of power but prince philip he was just his constitutional purpose was served when he uh, assisted the queen in procreating and producing four children uh, back in the 1950s and 60s. That, that's it. That's, that's his purpose served. So the rest of his life has been spent, um, you know, att- attending gatherings and 
uh, on diplomatic missions around the world, exemplifying the best of British by um, consuming their food and drink and insulting their cultures. Um, and uh, coming home to shoot grouse on the weekends. That's been his, and, and, and drive his Land Rover around. Well, that's, that's the life of Prince Philip. And uh, yeah, of course, he's probably done more than that. You know, I've got a Duke of Edinburgh's award, but you know, other people have administered that. Let's be real, not not the Duke of Edinburgh himself. It's not his work. He's just put his name to it. And we've got to have eight days of national mourning. It's it's a very um, strange, very feudal uh, kind of experience to go through. Some people have compared it um, to North Korea. Um, which might be a, a slight exaggeration because I'm sure because uh, we haven't seen uh, vans driving down every street blasting out the national anthem. Although maybe we'll see that when Elizabeth dies, who knows? Um, but yes, it's been it's been quite surreal. I've managed to uh, avoid it for the most part. Um, but uh, what what's your experience of uh, of of, uh, of the death of the great prince, uh, Ollie? Well, um, I, I guess I was just, I just, I couldn't really believe it because it's kind of one of those people you never really expect to die. You kind of think he's just going to live forever. Um, but in terms of how it's been reported in the media, um, I think it's one of those those rare moments where um, the, the kind of glass shatters and, and you see um, just how uh, propagandized and... Um, and controlled um, the, the media is to kind of shut down reporting for like two to three days, like fully, and just re- and just report on nothing else. To to I don't know. I think I think maybe it's got to do with something. Um, what happened when uh, the Queen Mother died in two thousand two, and there was a lot of complaints to the BBC that they didn't really do enough coverage on it. They didn't really spend enough time on it. Um, but. But I think this is is kind of obscure and it's kind of insane. Um, and I really think we should be questioning why we should be shutting down our kind of our national media to really to to honor this this man who was an an elected power. I just I, I don't know. It's it's really weird. But there's a lot of um, you know people defending the fact that um, the BBC and ITV and Sky News kind of spent so much time reporting on it because they they think of the royals as as national treasures um and fair enough but i think it's it's very valid to to question why we need um why we need you know two or three days of shutdown media when there's riots in in northern ireland that get no coverage it's it's pretty bad Hmm. yes um bradley what do you think yeah echo ollie's words really i think um obviously Condolences um, to the royal family um, and, and those that were close to, to Prince Philip. Um, I think I, I think this sort of the approach you get from some that are that are anti, you know anti monarchy um, of, of celebrating death of anyone I think is a bit in poor taste really. Um, I, I don't really think that's the sort of politics we should be aiming for. I think any any loss of human life, whoever it is, should should be mourned and not not celebrated. Um, so, so yeah, obviously condolences to to his family and loved ones. Um, but I think Ollie's right; it it's all a bit much, isn't it? 
Um, I I can understand, you know, maybe do, doing a, a minute silence. I can understand, obviously, it being a breaking news story. Um, but but eight days of mourning and, and, and all the rest of it, it, it's all it's all a bit much. And and imagine, you know, with this this is with Prince Philip. Imagine what it's going to be like when the Queen passes. Um, you know, society, it seems like society might just shut down for a week or something. You know, when the, when the Queen passes. Um, and I think it, it just highlights how utterly bizarre Britain is as a country. Um, we we are so strange. We're so weird. Um, you know, we 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 have a, a pensioner on the throne who actually does seem to have more influence over British politics um, that, than we've been led to believe, as, as recent revelations have shown. Um, and, and yeah, you you people you watch the Crown or something like that now. Obviously, some some royalists have, have questioned the accuracy of the Crown, and it, it is obviously a work of fiction. But if if there's any truth to the sort of the way they they represent the the relationships and and the the impact that things have on on the individuals involved, um, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that that the monarchy even works for the monarchy. Um, it, it's such a bizarre, strange, backwards, reactionary institution. Um, it just needs to go, doesn't it? Um, I I can live with the Queen, you know, living out her days as the Queen, and 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 when she passes, I think maybe she should be the last monarch of Britain. Let's let's get rid of this utterly bizarre and 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 archaic institution. I, I I agree entirely. I think that the the monarchy should. I've always been, I think, uh, a post Elizabethan Republican. Um, the, the the monarchy should die. In a, a a view, I think, shared by the likes of Michael Portillo. It's not necessarily a, a particularly radical left wing kind of thing. It's a sensible. Uh, modernist thing i suppose that you know what the hell are we doing living under a feudal monarchy in the 21st century um when she ascended to the throne uh, you know 70 odd years ago you know it was a very different world we've changed i think we we deserve our own sovereignty we deserve to be uh, citizens not subjects as the republic organization would say and i i agree you know um prince philip's death it shouldn't be celebrated um or or joked about really um to be fair you know when the queen dies we get a um we do get a bank holiday um i wouldn't complain if we got a whole week off um i think that would be that would be good i mean obviously for them from a pr perspective i think that would be very good for the royals wouldn't it um if if uh if people actually got some time off we won't get that for prince philip um unfortunately um his funeral's been scheduled for a saturday anyway um but yes no it's uh it's it's going to be an interesting experience uh, i think uh, what are your thoughts callum yeah it's it's a uh, it's a strange time the last few days we've been living through because i think we've rightly identified i think ollie said it that there is other things going on in the world but in in Britain, apparently everything is stood to stood stood still. Uh, there's nothing going on anymore. It's just this story, wall to wall coverage, and it, it is very strange. Um, and I and, and I would also like to echo the comments about his sending condolences to his family because it is somebody 
that has passed away. Um, he, he certainly had a good innings. Um, 99 years is not to be to be scoffed at. Um, and, and there is, despite people's um, opinions on the Royals, whichever way it goes, I think there is a an opportunity to reflect on a very long life and a character that's been at the centre of the institution that is the monarchy at the at the right hand side of, of the queen or just behind her in some instances where he's probably had a, a lot of influence at times um and he's he's also done a lot of work with some of the charities duke of edinburgh being one of them um so it's one of those where i think we can reflect upon the last 99 years or or however long he's been involved at the at the heart of uh of, of the the upper class of, of society at the at our uh, in our royal family, but also I think it's it is an opportunity to think about the future. So we should say, well, he was certainly a product of his time. Um, a lot of values were imperialist British values that were very outdated. Um, they certainly not reflective of the modern Britain that we know today. I think that it is slowly that the sun is is now starting to set on the on the royal family, or at least the influence that they have. Potentially, I could see a, a compromise being being brought about where um, it we would have a royal family that reflects the responsibility and and size of of other royal families on the continent. Perhaps uh, a lot smaller, a lot more modest. They still have a semi-constitutional role but it's not as influential or as important as historically maybe it is uh, or even it, it is now um, but it is it is a, a time for reflection I think and certainly laughing or mocking somebody that's laughing at or mocking somebody that's died or making very distasteful jokes about anybody that's passed away is, is just unacceptable really um, at the end of the day we all have to go through loss. We all have to grieve. We all have to mourn when we lose loved ones. Um, so a bit of respect from from people is would go a long way, regardless of your opinions on the royals. Whether you think that they're great, whether you think that they're awful and they should go, it's just a just a decent human thing to do to at least re- respect uh, a mourning family. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with that. Um... And of course, the way that we've been showing respect over the last few days uh, from a political standpoint has been to suspend all campaigning. Um, a Keir Starmer, from, talk, talk from a Labour Party perspective, because I think that's what we know most about. Um, Keir Starmer put out a statement on Friday, eulogising the Prince's life very briefly. Um, and instructions were given to local parties to suspend campaigning immediately on Friday afternoon, um, and to, the, and then that would take place over the weekend. Um, there were some concerns. Uh, I was saying before recording, I'm, I'm a candidate in North Kesteven, Um and that council put out a, an email to all candidates there, saying that some parties were. Um, respecting uh, the prince by suspending campaigning during the whole eight days of mourning. Um, But we've had further clarification late on um, Saturday 
saying that there's no campaigning this weekend. Uh, parliamentary tributes are due to be made to the Prince in Parliament at half past two on Monday. Once those are finished, we will be able to leaflet and then campaigning resumes normally on Tuesday. Uh, Saturday will be suspended again for the funeral as well, of course. So um, local elections haven't been entirely uh, put in the box for this uh, for this particular royal death. Um, but they have been disrupted um, a little bit. So that's that's been galling to some. Uh, other people can maybe look at the optics. Um, certainly, it's not maybe not productive to end up getting into uh, upsetting the most fanatical royalists out there. Um, but nevertheless, that's that's where we are. That's the sort of compromise, I think, that has been reached. Um, but on the wider scale, of course, these elections are rolling on. Um, in a few weeks' time, uh, Britons will now be going to the polls, or in fact, actually, in less than a week, many people will be going to the polls because political parties have also been encouraging people to sign up for postal ballots, and those postal ballots will be dropping on the 16th of April. Um, so many people will be uh, casting their votes in just less than a week's time, uh, these local elections are the first major electoral test for um, the leader of the Labour Party, Kiyastama. Um But the polls, unfortunately for him, are not looking that good. Um, just looking at Politico's poll of polls, uh, the Conservatives are on 43%. Uh, and uh, Labour's on 35%. So that's a, that's an average across all of the uh, major reputable polling firms uh, in the UK. Uh, the Lib Dems are on 8%, which is their uh, best result for some time, uh, April last year, uh, although they've been pretty steady since early 2020. Um, Greens are on 4%. Uh, the SNP are on 4%, but obviously they are far, far in the lead within Scotland. Uh, the Greens are on 3%, uh, and then the Reform Party, which is the um, reconstituted Brexit party, is on, on, uh, on 2%. So we're still living in a, in a two-party system for now, it seems. Um, but apart from a brief period uh, late last year, uh, Keir Starmer has so far failed to recover um, Labour's position to what it was under Jeremy Corbyn uh, or under the best times under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, what's going wrong, guys? What, what, do we, what do we think is happening? What's the, what's the uh, outcome going to be, do you reckon, Bradley? Well, I, I long ago made a vow not to, to predict, try and predict elections anymore because I always get it wrong. Um, it. I mean, it's it's not looking good on on any metric, really. Um, I think you know, Starmer. I think since the October sort of November time last year, if you look at virtually any measure, um, from from polling, um, party party preference polling to to Starmer's own personal approval ratings, or who would you most like as PM, or or I think, I think they might word it who most looks like a PM or something like that, um. But if you if you look at any of those sort of metrics since October November, Starmer's um, been been in the decline. Um, it's not going well at all. 
I think I think there's a lot of things going on. I think his insistence on a battle with the left um, in the party has not helped. I, I think his his strategy there was that he was elected off a pledge to to root out anti-Semitism, and and he he saw some of the failings of Corbyn's leadership in in getting to grips with that issue, and and didn't want to make the same mistake. So if if we're going to be generous to Starmer, I'm not sure he necessarily deserves it, but if we're going to give him the most generous um, account possible, I think he was trying to avoid Corbyn's mistakes with not being seen to be tough enough on anti-Semitism. So um, he decided to try and tackle that very quickly and I, I think at times has, has gone beyond what, what was right um, in how he tackled that. Um, and so I think you know he, his hope there was that it would improve the public perception of the party um, in in tackling one of the one of the what was one of the biggest issues for Corbyn's leadership. Um, I think what it's actually done though is um, continue a narrative of a Labour Party in turmoil and 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 you know a Labour Party civil war, and it's made us sort of look very divided and very inward looking um, amongst the public, and and that doesn't help with polling. So I, I don't I don't think that's worked for him, um, even if you generously assume his his good intentions behind that. Um, I think I think I mean I think the most obvious issue is that no one really knows what Starmer stands for. Um, I'm not entirely convinced Stephen Starmer knows himself. Uh, so so yeah, how, how do you how do you convince people to vote for a party when it's not really clear what that party's offering and and, and what what it look what what would Britain look like under Keir Starmer's leadership? Probably not that different to what it looks like now. Um, so I, I think that's probably a big factor as well. Uh, and and along with those two things combined, um, I think I think we're going to struggle in these local elections. I'm not going to make any predictions, but I I, I think I think we're going to struggle. Okay, I mean, does it not have? I mean, just again, looking at the at the poll of polls, you can see that uh, Conservatives and Labour were pretty much neck and neck late on last year uh, until January time, which is around the time the vaccines started to be rolled out in earnest and it started to show that it's going well. Um, And they've just been on the up ever since. And that has corresponded with a decline in in Labour's vote. So if there's a single cause... Uh, then surely it's got to be uh, the government's perceived success, despite the fact that they killed 130,000 people um, with their incompetence in the previous year. Nevertheless, now they're experiencing a bounce because of the vaccine. Can we really say that that's Keir Starmer's fault for having a sort of, for his poor internal party management? Um, Yeah. Can I just come back to that? Sorry. Yeah. I mean, you're quite right. Um, I, I did miss the vaccine um, as a factor. I think I think the vaccine rollout and it, everyone's been a bit taken aback by how well the government's actually rolled it out. I think so far, um, and absolutely that that will help the Tories, no doubt, go into the elections. Um, that that will definitely um, help Johnson personally and the party in the in the polling, no doubt about that. Um, but I I think to say that that's the main that that's the main reason, if or even the only reason, I think really let Starmer off the hook when he doesn't deserve it. Um, I mean, if you if you look at the polling, on certain metrics, um, start, Starmer starts going down well into 2020, um, September, October, November time, he starts to decline. Um, and you can't you can't really explain that um, with the vaccine rollout. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think absolutely the, the vaccine rollout will absolutely help the government and give them a bit of a boost. Um, but I don't think we can ignore the obvious issues of Star Wars leadership um, because of that. Ollie, what do you think? Yeah, I think I agree with Bradley, actually. I think it's a bit of a cop-out to say that it's entirely because of the vaccine rollout um, that Labour are, are quite far behind um, the Conservatives in this. Um, I think I think maybe last year when it was it was like neck and neck, wasn't it, between Labour and the Conservative um, in voting intention, where I think at one point maybe even Labour uh, were one point ahead on 40%. Um, but obviously, yeah, it's been steadily downhill since then. I think the explanation in that is is partly because of um, the mistakes that that Keir Starmer has has made, really. Um, And because I think they're in love with um, the the people that supported Keir Starmer and and wanted him as leader, I think they were in love with the the idea of him to be this kind of uh, reformed um, neo-Blairite that that has the, the same kind of policies, but he's much more, you know, socialism with a friendly face, I think we, we talked about before. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it's just gone quite badly now. And I don't think the only reason, um, I don't think the only reason is because of um, the vaccine rollout. I think it's because of, of Starmer's leadership and the mistakes he's made, such as, um, arguably kicking Corbyn out of the party, um, disillusioning, disillusioning the, the member base at large, I think. Um, you know, and he's just been such a poor opposition. Um, in during, during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, there were a number of people on the Labour right which were saying any Labour leader would be, you know, 10, 20 points ahead of the Conservatives at any given time just for automatically not being Corbyn. And I think, um, you know, that's really come into question... <laughs> how credible that that statement is um, because, you know, here we've got someone that isn't Corbyn and he's still quite far in the polls. And uh, as we as we said, I think someone said before the podcast, where are all these people now that, that were so heavily critical um, to, to Corbyn for being behind in the polls, despite, I would argue, um, you know, being one of the most effective Labour leavers um, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years? Hmm. I think, sorry, just uh, I just want to say about Ollie. Yeah, I, I think Ollie's right as well to say actually for for the past year, um, yeah, the, the, there's never been a point when Labour has been like storming ahead of the polls. I think there was a period in 2020 where we were neck and neck. You know, some polls might have shown us a few points ahead at most, but th- there's never been a point when you know Labour's been uh, absolutely storming ahead and, and the government's really looked in trouble. There's not been a point where that's happened in the Sarmans leadership. Um, I think. I think given the tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths and the, the biggest, yeah, it's, it's become a cliche now, but the, you know, people often refer to this now as the, the biggest crisis since the Second World War that this country's ever gone through. It's been absolutely appallingly handled by the, the, the government. Um, how on earth has Starmer not made more headway in the polls based off that? And I think partly that's because he's, he's quite deliberately not tried try to, to, to have a, an all out assault on the government. You know, he's, he's, been tried to be very statesmanlike and, and to be very constructive and supportive of the government, which in some instances I understand and it works. Um, but I think there's definitely times when Sarah could have pressed the government more on issues, um, but it, but has chosen not to. And I think that's partly why we haven't made um, more on the polling and, and why maybe uh, public opinion 
has hasn't been as much against um, the government as it could have been. Because this is the thing we always forget about um, perceptions of, of the other party is that you know the opposition informs that the way the opposition acts and, and talks about the other party and the way it challenges and tries to set the agenda will influence public opinion. You know, often we talk about these things as if um, you know, we're supposed to chase public opinion, but but political parties can play a role in shaping what public opinion is as well. Um, and I feel like we've probably shied away from that a little bit in the summer. Callum. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty damning stuff. Um, I think we we really should be doing better in the polls. Uh, if we had a clearer direction of travel, if we said to ourselves, "Well, we've got some fantastic policies that the public like that we've put out in previous general elections, and indeed in local elections, there's some fantastic ideas from Labour councillors and and some of our Labour councils and." Um, mayors up and down the country and they really I, I think they go down really well with 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 the public but we're not doing that uh, I think there was a study by the um, CWU they, they ran some polling and it found that a lot of the issues that we were talking about in 2017 and in 2019 are issues that people care about so if, if Starmer has, has made the promise with his 10 pledges to stick by the manifesto, we might have actually been doing a bit better. And I can understand, yes, the argument that we are currently under COVID uh, regulations, that's dominating the news. Um, it's it's very much set the agenda. And I'm sure that's not what we wanted to be talking about. But actually, it still, in theory, should benefit us if it's a health issue, because we are the party of the NHS. And we can say that the NHS has been so critically underfunded for the last, well, the last two decades or so, probably since the, uh, probably since the the end of, of the Blair years. Um, it's it's been massively underfunded. Austerity has ruined sections of the NHS and taken away critical healthcare uh, provisions for some of our communities that they need them the most. And we're not speaking about that in the middle of a pandemic that's highlighting the issues. So we, we need to, we need to have a real think about how, how do we talk about issues and relate to people? Cause I don't think that currently the labor party for, for ordinary people is very relatable because we're not talking about the issues they care about. We're imposing candidates in constituencies that are um, not local they don't represent the views of local people, um, which could be problematic. Um, so in Hartlepool, we're going to have to watch that one very closely, what happens. Because I fear that we may lose Hartlepool, which is a, a, a long-held Labour seat, or it's certainly never fallen into the Tory hands in the last few decades. Um, I think we've got a lot of problems but we've got to listen to communities that we, we are putting candidates in. We've got to be taking candidates from those communities and we've got to be looking to make a difference in people's lives. And currently the, the, the sound bites coming out of the, the party at times are, are, are not very inspiring. And we need to inspire people to say that we are the party that's going to make that difference for you. We are the party that's going to properly invest in our NHS, ensure that your children get a good education 
we want to fight for equality for all throughout society and ensure that people get fair pay. Things like that people listen to. But currently we're, we're trying to tread a line that, that nobody else really cares about. We're, we're trying to, I suppose, it, we, yeah, we're, we're sitting on a fence and we're being ignored for that reason. So we need to take a side and we need to say that we are on your side that being people that are struggling at the moment, people that are living in communities up and down the country that have been forgotten about. That's what the Labour Party is all about, positive change. And it's it's something that I think we need to rediscover. And I don't know how we do that under the current leadership unless there is a master plan for after the local elections to really get ourselves out into our local communities. Because it's being done at local level certainly better than it is at a national level. It's been done by a lot of good activists up and down the country, but we need to have a party in unity pulling in the same direction for it to make any difference electorally. Yeah, I think it comes... I think we need to listen to the lived experiences of our trade union members as well. Um, I would say particularly those who have obviously worked in, in healthcare and in public service over the last year, um, though their experiences need to inform what the Labour Party's position is because it's been working people who have suffered the most uh, during this uh, pandemic. And so it's their voices that we need to uh, raise up over uh, in the wake of this, this pandemic. I mean, I think that, uh, I, I think it's unlikely, for instance, that we'll see you know, Keir Starmer step down or resign. I don't think any Labour leader has ever done that um, after a, a local election results, no matter how uh, bad they may be. And of course, the if they are bad for the Labour Party, which of course I hope that they're not, um, I think it will ultimately be blamed on the vaccine bounce, which I mentioned earlier. Um, but if we're going to be building a, a more long-term strategy, um, it needs to be, uh, and this, to be fair, is something that Keir Starmer's office has said, that once the pandemic is over, it needs to be about, the, uh, compare it to the post-World War uh, period, so winning the peace almost. Um, I, I think it's not, not, not an ideal comparison, but you can kind of see the thinking there that's fairly coherent, which is that we've had this, a uh, terrible catastrophe, and now this is an opportunity to to reshape the world based on that experience. Um, and there are potential vehicles for that because Momentum's come out with a, a pretty good uh, program uh, voted for by its members. Um, I haven't seen the details of that, uh, haven't been, but um, that uh, seems pretty good to me. Um, and they're obviously a fair, still a fairly influential uh, driver of, of, of policy within the party. I think it'd be interesting when it comes to uh, conference this year, um, what goes on there, whether the leadership will want to try and create a new policy platform that moves us away from the 2019 election manifesto, as people like Peter Mandelson want us to, whether the members will use this as an opportunity to to reaffirm what they voted for when they elected Keir Starmer, which was, as, uh, as Ollie said earlier, um, socialism with a friendly face. 
or Corbinism with a friendly face. Um, I think these are these are battles to be had. The, the focus for me uh, as a local party secretary and as a candidate um, is just going to be about um, doing our absolute best to win here for our communities. Um, and I hope we all, I'm confident, we'll get a good local result at the very least. Um, and maybe Keir Starmer and the Labour Party will surprise us nationally. Um, and that will, I think, inform the way that the left behaves over the preceding months. But um, I think we'll, um, we'll end it on that, unless there are any final thoughts. Bradley? Uh, no, just just stay safe, folks, um, and uh, yeah, keep fighting a good fight. Good, good. Uh, Callum? Yeah, stay safe. Join the train union. Uh, get out in your community when you can. Please be safe, and uh, obviously with the pubs be opening, be sensible. Yes, be sensible, be safe. Ollie? Uh, yeah, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, remember to join a trade union and we'll see you next time.